This is They Create Worlds, episode 54, Blizzard, Vikings, and Warcraft. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hey, hello. Well, Alex, we're here. We're hiding in the studio. It's cold outside. Doors are sealed from the cats. The window is closed from the blizzard. It's snowing. I don't think it was snowing today, actually. It was It was a very nice day. It was a nice, it wasn't really a fall day. It was more like a nice late spring day. Um. Oh, oh, we're we're doing a bit, aren't we? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, we're doing a bit. Yes. Uh, yes. A blizzard is on the way, and so this seems like the perfect moment to talk about Blizzard Entertainment. W- w- was that good for the bit? Was that a good bit? Yes. All right. All right. We're gonna take it and run with it <laughs> for you, the consumer. That's right. Today, we are looking at one of the iconic companies in the American computer game slash video game industry, that glorious development studio, Blizzard Entertainment. They don't release many games. Sometimes they cancel completely finished games. But they always somehow manage to redefine computer game entertainment as we know it. And to my knowledge, they have canceled two complete games. Yes. One of which is now available through. Methods that are illegal, so we cannot endorse them on this show. Aww. But I like game. That's okay. But that's all right. We get to talk about Blizzard Entertainment, which, at least as far as PC gaming goes, is pretty much the seminal work that has redefined so many aspects of particularly real-time strategy, mm-hmm. definitely defined MMOs. Mm-hmm. And even today, they continue to, now that they've moved into the free-to-play realm, they are finding new ways with games like Hearthstone and Overwatch to continue to push the boundaries of how we think entertainment works. It's very interesting. We are in a huge controversy right now. I don't know if you've been following in any of the websites or whatnot about loot boxes. I have not. I'm not hip to what the kids do these days because... As much as I love video games and I love talking about video games and certainly the history aspect, the amount of time I have to actually sit down, play, let alone keep up on news is, let's say, uh, next to none. Sure. Well, I can't say that I myself play any of these more modern games uh, that use loot boxes, games like Destiny, and uh, I may pick up the new uh, Mordor game at some point, but... I haven't played a lot of these games either, but it's a big controversy right now where you have this kind of randomized gambling element to acquiring rare equipment, what the Japanese would call a gachapon, uh, and in fact originated in Japan, this idea that you get a, a loot box and you have a certain percentage chance of maybe getting something good from it that's a very low chance, but the more boxes you open, the greater your chance gets. So it's not something like an MMO lottery system where you fight the boss and the boss drops a piece of equipment then everyone rolls to see who gets the equipment it's not 
that kind of gambling. It's the kind of thing where you don't even know if you're going to get something good. But the more often you try, the greater the chance that you'll get something. And of course, while you can get these boxes in the normal course of the game, you can also spend real money to acquire these boxes. Of course. And I do own Overwatch, so I am familiar with how loot boxes work in principle. And it's just sort of, at least personally, I don't care as long as it's nothing that affects the game. Exactly. And so that's exactly where I was going to go, because Overwatch uses this strictly for cosmetic equipment, cosmetic items, skins. Obviously, some people are still a little sad about that because completionists that want to get all of these skins are sad that they may have to spend money. But Blizzard has managed to monetize Overwatch with a loot box system in a way that doesn't affect gameplay, where so many other companies are looking more and more at ways to put actual useful equipment in these boxes and and actually can create disparities in capability based on how much people play. Even in that area, Blizzard is, in a sense, bucking the trend, because even though they're still using loot boxes, they're not using loot boxes in a way that directly affects gameplay, just as you said. All right. So that's the history of modern Blizzard. (laughs) How about proto-Blizzard in the before times and the long, long ago when there were crafts of wars? Well, this is even far before there were crafts of wars. Really? No, we we have to There were Blizzards before Warcraft? Well, no, not really. But there were silicons and there were synapses. Oh, yes. The old name. (laughs) These are pretty much names you would only know if you're a video game historian or friend with one. So why don't we tell the people about this then? Sounds like a plan. So the company that we know today as Blizzard Entertainment is really the brainchild of a single individual. And that individual is Mr. Alan Adam. Mr. Adam was a big game player growing up, got hooked on the arcades when he was in middle school or high school, somewhere around there. Got himself an Apple II computer, as so many of these enthusiasts did, and then started doing his own programming. He decided that this was something that he could make some money on. So actually, when he was still in high school, he started making games and he started contracting his services out to other people. He was from Southern California. The majority of the scene in the video game industry is, of course, in Northern California, in Silicon Valley. But there are a small number, or were, a small number of companies actually located in Orange County and other areas surrounding Los Angeles. One of these companies was Interplay Entertainment, which for a time was a very significant publisher. The founder of Interplay, Brian Fargo, was an unusual individual. I believe we've talked about this before, even though we haven't focused specifically on Interplay. We have talked about Interplay, but yeah, we haven't focused on them. Right. Brian Fargo was an interesting individual because he was both a jock and a nerd, the kind of thing that should not possibly exist. He was a star track and field runner. I mean, really a star, like maybe Olympic potential star. I mean, he didn't get there, but I mean, he was a real jock and he was a real nerd. He loved Dungeons and Dragons. He loved computer games. He loved fantasy novels. He learned how to program. I mean, he lived in two worlds and so he was able to interact in both worlds. He was able to interact in kind of the businessman's realm and in the nerd geek programmer realm very comfortably. In the mid-80s, when he needed more programmers to do ports or additional projects or what have you, 
he would actually go on the the BBSs, the bulletin board systems that existed back in these pre-internet days. And he would find the games that people were putting up uh, for other people to download. And he would find the people behind these games and he would maybe contract them. So Alan Adam was active in the local BBS scene and Brian Fargo was active in the local BBS scene. And so they connected and Adam did some work for Interplay. He knew from these experiences programming and selling his product that he wanted to form a video game company, computer game company, video game company, whatever. He knew that this is what he was going to do. This was his plan. He went to UCLA to major in computer science, but all along he knew that when he was done, what he was going to do was found a computer game company or a video game company. Now, obviously, he can't do this alone. One man does not a company make, especially now that we're getting into the late 80s. He graduated in 1990, just for frame of reference. So he's in college in the late 80s. By the late 80s, it takes more than one person to make the latest and greatest video games. So he's going to need some help. Makes a couple of friends in school. One of those friends is Mike Morhaime. Mike Morhaime is a kindred spirit. He's another one of these guys that's been programming. He loves games, yada, yada, yada. They have a couple of classes together late in Morhaime's college career. Morhaime's a little ahead of Adam. Not much, but a little bit. They have a couple of classes together, and, and as they tell the story, they ended up bonding because in, they were in this one computer lab. I can't remember if it was a part of a class or they were just next to each other in the computer lab. And Alan locked his computer because he had to get up and go do something or whatnot. And he comes back and he logs back into his computer, which is perfectly normal behavior. But then Mike is kind of confused. He's like, how did you do that? And he's like, well, I just typed in my password. I mean, it's a computer. And he was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Your computer actually unlocked on its own while you were gone. So I relocked it using my password. Turned out they were using the same password to lock their screens. Oh, my. <laughs> and it was just the name Joe or something like that. I mean, these were innocent times. It's not like he was using some complicated algorithm to generate a 20-character random password or something. I mean, <laughs> but it just so happened that they used the same password. So they, they kind of bonded. They became friends. So Mike was someone that Alan asked to join him on this journey. Another guy was Frank Pierce. Adam had one class with Pierce late in his college career. It was an AI class. In Alan's words, it was just the most boring class. He hated the class. So he would often cut class to go to the student union and play arcade games, play video games instead. So that was a lot better use of his time, in his opinion. And he would often see Frank there, too. Frank was obviously cutting the class as well and had the same urge to go play video games. This is another guy that was a gamer. And so they kind of bonded. Mike and Frank didn't know each other. Even though they went to school together, they didn't know each other. But Alan knew Mike and Alan knew Frank. Mike and Frank were just a little ahead, like I said, of Alan. So they graduated six months before he did. And they got real jobs. Mike went to Western Digital. Frank went to Rockwell. Then when Alan graduated, he was like, okay, now it's time. We're going to do this. I want to found a video game company. Come found a video game company with me. Come do this thing. So Mike and Frank said, yes, it's kind of that usual Silicon Valley thing, even though they're not in the valley, <laughs> they're down in Irvine, they're down in Orange County. It's that same kind of Silicon Valley mentality of we're young, we're smart. This is what we want to do. 
if we tried and fail, we just go get real jobs with our computer skills. And if we tried and succeed, then we're happy and, and we make all the money and we have all the happiness. So why not? So the three of them, Alan Adham, Mike Morhaime, and Frank Pierce, decide to found a company together specifically to make video games. They decide to call that company Silicon and Synapse. The idea behind this, which the founders themselves have admitted nobody ever got, was that they are making brainy, intelligent, articulate, whatever, video games. And silicon is the foundational material of circuits, of computers. The synapse is the basic building block, so to speak, of the human brain. And so we are taking these basic building blocks of the human and the computer, and we are merging them together to create wonderfulness. Works for me. And then everyone wondered why their company was named after that thing they put in breast implants. Oops. <laughs> Not silicone, they would have to explain. Silicon. That's less and less a problem as computers penetrate society more and more. But it was definitely a problem back in the day because silicon and silicone sound very similar to each other. Eh, just at the end. <laughs> So that's what they did. They founded this company in, in Irvine, and they are Silicon and Synapse. And because Alan Adham has that Brian Fargo connection, they immediately have contracts. Very first contract they get is to port the Battle Chess, I think the second Battle Chess game. Some sources say it was just Battle Chess, but I think it was the second Battle Chess game to PC. They also got a contract to port Interplay's Lord of the Rings game to the Amiga. And they're off and running, doing these contract work, doing porting. They're a development studio. They're not a publisher. They're not even making their own games at this point. But they have that interplay connection, so they have work right away. They do get a chance then very quickly to create an original game, sort of, as well. Brian Fargo is in with Electronic Arts. They used to publish, you know, The Bard's Tale was published by Electronic Arts, which was an interplay game. So he was in with Electronic Arts, and he really liked the EA game Racing Destruction set. It's a racing game that we actually did not talk about in our driving game episode, but it was released in 1985. It had a couple of notable features. It, had, it wasn't just a level track. It would have not just curves, but it would also have ups and downs on the track, which, as we discussed in our driving game episode, was certainly very unusual in 1985. It also had some rudimentary weapons. This is kind of one of the first racing games to have weapons. Uh, you could get oil slicks, for instance, and you could spill oil behind you to take out other drivers behind you, etc. And it also had course building as well. The racing construction set, just like the pinball construction set and the music construction set that Electronic Arts did, except destruction sounded cooler in the context of this racing game. I think when our EA episode, we did cover that. Thing mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah, we probably talked about it very briefly. It's not one of their more significant games, but Brian Fargo liked it. So he actually negotiated with EA the rights to make a remake slash sequel slash what have you to it called RPM Racing. And so Blizzard, which of course this time is Silicon and Synapse, did that game as well. So that was an original game, but it was not their idea. It was something they were contracted to do. So they were very good at all of this. They got their ports in on time. They got RPM Racing in on time. Uh, they did good yeoman work. None of these games were huge or anything, but they clearly knew what they were doing. So since they knew what they were doing, 
Brian Fargo gave them a shot to actually make their own product. This was a very important relationship for Brian, too, because at this period in time, Interplay has begun doing some of its own publishing on computer platforms, but Brian really wants to get on the console platforms because that's where the real money is. He has ambitions to be a bigger and better company than he is right now. They created games on the Nintendo Entertainment System. They did a role-playing game called Swords and Serpents for Acclaim. They did a game called Adventures in Rad Gravity for Activision. And they did a couple of others. But they are developers on console. They are not publishers. Brian really wants to get in to the publishing business. And if he's going to get in the publishing business, he needs more development talent than he just has in Interplay. So RPM Racing was actually a Super Nintendo game. It may have been the very first Super Nintendo game created by an American developer. It's one of those things that they they claim it is, and it's one of those things that I haven't actually sat down to look at the complete list of SNES games and been like, okay, is is this the very first one or not? But it, it, if it wasn't, it was certainly pretty darn close. I mean, they were still using Japanese dev kits. You know, everything was in Japanese <laughs> in the kits they were using because it was that early in the process. So Brian, Brian Fargo, naturally wants them to do more of these Super Nintendo games because that's where his focus is. That's what he wants to be involved in. So the first thing they do is a sequel to RPM Racing called Rock and Roll Racing. And it's basically just taking RPM Racing up to 11. I mean, RPM Racing already had spectacular crashes and weapons and all of these things. So now they have futuristic rocket cars and even more outlandish weapons and even higher speeds and all of this stuff. It's just dialing the game up to 11. The other early game that they're working on is a takeoff on Lemmings. We've talked about Lemmings. We've talked about Lemmings fairly recently, have we? Maybe. I remember having to look up a video for Lemmings, The Lost Tribe. Yes. So we've talked about Lemmings. And of course, you know Lemmings. I know you were a big fan of the Lemmings. I still am a big fan (laughs) of the Lemmings. I mean, I adore the music from Lemmings Tribes and I kind of get lost sometimes. And when I was looking up that video, I may or may not have just sat there for half an hour listening to the music. (laughs) Hmm, so that's why it takes you so long to edit these episodes. <laughs> yeah, amongst many other reasons, it takes me forever to edit these episodes. And if you want to see just how long it takes Jeffrey to edit these episodes, he sometimes streams that editing, don't you, Jeff? Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally I do. So tell the good people about Lemmings. Lemmings is fun. You have adorable lemmings that are really mice, but not really. They have green hair and they need your help in order to guide them from point A to point B. Point A is the entryway. Point B is some sort of exit way. How you get there is whatever way you choose. However, there's all these obstacles like height and horrible lava and water. All sorts of ways to get these poor little lemmings to die. And then you have abilities that you can only tell the lemming to do so many times. So you have the few initial stragglers come out and you do things like grab the blocker and say, okay, lemming, you're going to block in order to stop them from going over this cliff. 
Okay, while this is going on, I'm going to think about how I need to get you guys from point A to point B. Ah, okay, let's take this route. Let's take this lemming, have him jump over the blocker. Okay, and right now, start building a bridge. Fantastic. Oh, you ran out of pieces and fell to your death. Okay, next guy, you come over here and continue finishing that bridge. Oh, you got hit by the fire. All right, you come over here, go across the bridge, stop the people from walking into the fire, and you do some stomping things in order to get us down to where the, uh, the exit is. Oh, okay, so that guy made it. All right, send the people through. Oh, wait, the guy who did the stomp down went down too far, so everyone's falling to their death. Okay, we need to redo this level and replay and think. Rinse, wash, repeat. Pretty much. It's a puzzle game where you are trying to get as many lemmings as possible from point A to point B using special abilities that you can use to transform lemmings and then occasionally blowing them up too. But blowing them up is so much fun. <laughs> they say, ow. <laughs> yes. And it's a nice little nuclear symbol. So at the end of the game, when you have just the stop lemmings and you don't know how to make them unstop in order to, you know, finish the level, you just go, okay, well, I saved everyone I could. I only had this like three stoppy guys there. Uh, okay, fine. Hit the nuclear weapon. Boom, boom, boom. Ow, ow, ow. Yes, you do that, you monster. I am. <laughs> so they wanted to replicate that, obviously, on console. And they started out by having a bunch of guys on the screen with special abilities, and then they realized you can't really control that many guys on a console very easily. You ever play the Super Nintendo version of Lemmings and oh, you're God. going to cry? Oh, God. So then they narrowed it down to five, and then four, and then three of these individuals, which just so happened to be Vikings. We like Vikings. That's right. And so they came up with this puzzle platform game called Lost Vikings. They need to get home. That's right. They learned some very important things doing Lost Vikings. First of all, when they thought they had the game finished, they submitted it to Interplay. And back in those days, Brian Fargo played everything that came into Interplay. Because you have to understand, Brian Fargo was a businessman, but Brian Fargo was and is a gamer. So. He would play everything that came in. I mean, he had testers too, but he would play them himself and personally give feedback because he was a gamer. And so Brian was like, yeah, this is okay. Now fix this, 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 and this. One of the things that he said is that the three Vikings were too indistinguishable from each other. The color palette wasn't bright enough and the differences weren't clear enough. So you need to fix that so that people can tell the three Vikings apart very easily because they each have different special abilities, and then you have to use these special abilities in combination to get them through these levels. It's a puzzle platformer. So this was kind of the beginning, in a way, of what we think of today as the sort of Blizzard art style. It's colorful, it's cartoony, it's distinctive without all of that annoying processing power that's needed to make everything ridiculously photorealistic and whatever else have you. It would be oversimplifying the situation to say that this is the one moment that you can pinpoint the Blizzard look to. Obviously, they do lots of games and different artists do different things and that all kind of comes together. But this is kind of the, the beginning of kind of establishing that Blizzard look. 
And it's very important, I think, very important to Blizzard's later success on computer platforms that they started in the console business, which is unusual. Most companies start in computer games and then maybe move on to consoles. Blizzard did it the other way around. Back in those days, you are playing your console games on a CRT television. Your CRT television has a display that is no greater than 640 by 480 pixels. Your television may well be outputting interlaced video, which means that it's actually only drawing every other one of those lines. So you actually have fewer pixels. Your television may be susceptible to annoying flicker. It could be just an older, more beat-up television that just has a fuzzier image. It is not as good a display as even your CRT computer monitor back in those days, most of the time. And think about that now. We are so used to 720p, 1080p. We have pretty LCD monitors. In this room, we have three of them so that we can see how our levels are on the podcast. But we do have our friend. It's ancient. It has the Atari hooked up to it. An old CRT Sharp. The logo says Samsung. Right. I'm blind. (laughs) And forgetful. (laughs) And there's a fan in the way. Yes. The the point being, though, that Even though, of course, the monitors back then were also CRT, by this time they tended to be higher resolutions than 640 by 480. And even if they were 640 by 480 resolution, they tended to be better screens anyway than a lot of the televisions people had their video game systems hooked up to. So you needed really bright, really clear, really distinctive graphics to be able to pick up differences between various sprites and background elements in a console game. You needed more of that, more exaggeration, more color saturation, for instance, than you needed in a comparable computer game just because of the screen that you are using to play that game. So when we think of Blizzard computer games, when we think of particularly Warcraft 2, I think is probably the prime example of this, We think of bright, colorful, gaudy, cartoony. I really think that a lot of that comes from the fact that they had to do that for their console games. And then that translated into their computer games. Mm -hmm. And it became kind of the Blizzard look. So that's one of the two important lessons from Lost Vikings. The other important lesson was, didn't really sell all that great. It's a console game and everything big on console and it's on the Super Nintendo and everything. Yeah, but it's not really the kind of game that you want on console. Now, it reviewed well and it got some good notices in the magazines and whatnot. It was a well put together game. It was an interesting game, but it was a slow paced puzzle platformer. It wasn't the type of game that console players were really going for. And again, you can't distill, it would be oversimplifying to say that this was the moment in Blizzard history that they had an epiphany, but it it is one of the moments. This is one of the moments that led them to realize that you can have 
a great game with great mechanics and good graphics and all of that. But if it's not accessible to your audience, it's just not going to sell as well. That's not going to play further on down the line. <laughs> no, never. And this was this was important to that. I mean, I'm not just saying that as an armchair historian either. Uh, Patrick Wyatt, who was the very first employee of the company, the very first person brought in after the three founders. He was a friend of Mike Morhaime's, so Mike Morhaime brought him in. He was another programmer. He said that that was one of the lessons of Lost Vikings, was the whole accessibility thing, that that was very important. So they make one final Super Nintendo game for Interplay after that. Again, you have to remember that all of these guys are gamers themselves. They're big gamers, which makes them a little different. I mean, all of the development studios... As opposed to the publishers. I mean, development studios tend to be founded by people that enjoy games. That's just logical. But they usually have maybe a businessman that isn't a gamer. Or maybe as they expand their team and they need to bring in artists and sound people and whatnot, maybe they bring in people that are really good at drawing but don't necessarily play games themselves. So while it may seem intuitive to say that they're all gamers, because of course... Why would they found found a game development studio if they didn't like games? It's really a case that they were all gamers. Alan Adam, Mike Morhaime, and Frank Pierce, who were divvying up the running of the company between themselves, they were all gamers. So the business people, such as they were, they weren't professional business people, but they were running the company. They were gamers. Patrick Wyatt, who they brought in, he was a gamer. The early artists that they brought in, since they were all programmers, most of their early hires tended to be artists because that's the skill set they didn't have. Their early artists like Sam Didier and Stu Rose, the early people that helped define the Blizzard look aesthetically, they were also gamers. They were playing games all the time. They had a Neo Geo in the office and they were playing Samurai Showdown like crazy. They were playing Magic the Gathering once Magic the Gathering came out just a few years later. They were playing other computer games, other video games. They were, many of them were D&D players. I mean, game playing was encouraged at the office. They didn't just play games in their spare time. Part of their workday was spent playing games. The theme that we're going to start seeing emerge, too, about the company is that most of those hit products that they make are based on the games that they themselves were playing at the time. And again, everyone tends to get their inspiration from what came before. I mean, that doesn't necessarily in itself make Blizzard unique, but the fact that so many of them are such huge gamers does put them in a somewhat unique and somewhat advantageous situation when they do see a game that they like and decide to put the old Blizzard twist on it, so to speak. Makes sense to me. You can sort of see that with, say, uh, Brood War, the uh, expansion for StarCraft One. I swear they must have been watching Starship Troopers way too much that week because the Terran Confederacy is very familiar. <laughs> yes, that's true. And, of course, the dropships, the shuttles of the Terrans as well. Everything that they say are direct quotes from aliens. That stuff like in the pipe 555, those are all movie quotes that the dropship pilots, marine dropship pilots in Aliens say in the movie. So yeah, clearly they pull from a wide variety of sources for that kind of thing. <laughs> because they really are immersed in this culture, every last one of them. 
not just a few of the people, but all of them. So their final Super Nintendo game, which is not a remarkable game, that's a lot of build-up for a pretty unremarkable game, but it's build-up that'll come back to be important later in the episode, was a kind of cinematic action platformer called Blackthorn. This time, you know, they, they did rotoscoping. They took a lot of cues from Prince of Persia and those kind of cinematic platforming-type games. Again, it's just that's the kind of stuff that they were interested in, so they made a game that was very similar to that. But none of these Super Nintendo games did all that well. They weren't barn burners, and they were in a situation where money was going to kind of start to be a problem. So they had a couple of different paths forward. They knew they really shouldn't be a contract developer anymore. They needed to do their own games, and they needed to have the freedom to take those risks and the ability to reap those rewards. They had a very good relationship with Interplay, and they had the opportunity to become kind of an affiliate of Interplay. Brian Fargo actually invested in the company. He took 10%, I think, of the company. And he was willing to give them some opportunity, I think, to publish under their own name with Interplay just kind of providing some support services. So that was an opportunity they had. But then they ended up having another opportunity because they had also done some contract work for an edutainment company called Davidson & Associates. We talked about Davidson. We talked about Davidson in the context of Sierra. You may recall that we talked about uh, Bob and Jan Davidson, who had founded Jan was an educator, and she thought computer software was just horrible for educational purposes because it was so boring and whatnot. And so she collaborated with a programmer to make a game called Math Blaster, an edutainment game called Math Blaster. And it was huge. And off the back of that game, they started to build an edutainment empire with these educational products that have slight gameplay elements in it. They were at the point now where they were pretty much the leading edutainment company. They had kind of maxed themselves out in that field. So they were starting to look for ways to expand out of edutainment and into pure entertainment. They were very impressed with the Silicon and Synapse people, and they were impressed with the work that the company had done on a couple of their things. And so they started sniffing around and said, We're good at edutainment, and we have salespeople, marketing people, retail contacts, etc. You're good at entertainment, and you are looking to grow and become kind of your own label, become your own people. Why don't we buy you? And at first, the Silicon and Synapse people were not too enamored about that because they didn't really want to be controlled by somebody else. Kind of this idea of being invested in with Interplay and Interplay kind of helping them publish, but Interplay not owning them felt like something that was more in line with how they saw their own future. Which makes sense because how else are you going to do some of the seminal work that Blizzard ends up doing? Unless you have the freedom to do that and you don't have this controlling hand going, well, that's outside the norm. Right. Don't do that. Exactly. Then two things happened. First, Davidson's and Associates made them a ridiculous offer. A ridiculous offer in their minds. I mean, I think it was like $6.7 million or something. I mean, in today's terms, it was small potatoes. 
But in the context of the time and in the context of where Silicon and Synapse was as a company, it was huge. Since they weren't too serious about selling, they just threw out what they thought was an astronomical number. And the Davidsons were like, okay. (laughs) So first, they got a ridiculous offer. Second, the Davidsons promised them that they would have complete and total independence to do as they saw fit when it came to crafting, creating entertainment products. Now, what's interesting about this is that this does play further on as Blizzard goes down the line. They get bought out by various companies at various points, and they're very hands-off. Mm-hmm. They just let Blizzard do the Blizzard thing. And this is something that I think is particularly unique to Blizzard. It really is. We have talked so many times about so many companies in the course of us covering various companies in the past 50 some odd episodes. There's an acquisition, some sort of pie in the sky promise of, oh yeah, you're going to have autonomy and able to do whatever. Of course you will. You can trust us. We're American business people. Right. It falls on deaf ears. They get controlled for one reason or another. It software ran into that. So many companies did. It ends up you have all the key people either leave or the company is so stifled that it gets taken down and just dies on its own or they're bought out as part of some other company who's in dire straits trying to build themselves back up by buying up a company. And they buy up a good publisher and then they go, or a good company, and go, yeah, they'll save us. And then because they're trying to control things, it all just blows up. Mm -hmm. I think Blizzard is the only case I know of where they get bought out by another company and it actually works out for them. Exactly. And as we will see in the episode, this happens to them, like you said, multiple times. And each corporate parent no matter how much they screw up other aspects of their computer game or video game publishing business, no matter how much control they exert over other areas, they always leave Blizzard alone. And that's a big part of why Blizzard has been able to keep doing what they do. But you can't necessarily do that with any old company. I mean, if that were the magic formula to having a great third-party developer, then everybody would do that with all their developers, and every game that ever came out would be amazing. Obviously, it doesn't work that way. It's hard to say exactly what makes it truly unique, but I do think there's something to be said for the fact that the entire culture of the company has always been based around games by gamers for gamers. We're going to have fun at the office, even though we're crunching, crunching, crunching like crazy. We're going to play games together. We're going to bond together. And obviously, it's a huge company now, thousands of people, and they have satellite offices in foreign countries. It's not the same company that it was in 1994 when it was purchased by Davidson and Associates. But that culture, I think, still to some degree has to permeate. You know, all the founders are still there. Alan Adham left for many years. He's the one that left. In 2004, he was just completely burned out. He was recently married, so he had a family now. And he was just like, I'm done. And he left in 2004. He went and managed a hedge fund for years. Then he came back in 2016. He's just recently back. Mike and Frank never left. They have been there the entire time. And there are still a lot of very early employees that are still there as well. 
there's a culture there, and I don't know exactly what makes up the Blizzard culture, but whatever it is, they have crafted a culture that has endured and has also created confidence in every publisher they've ever had to just leave them the F alone. All right. So the first company to buy them is Davidson and Associates. How do we go from there? Well, first of all, we get ourselves a name change because this Silicon and Synapse thing is not in any way working out. So the first thing we do is we become Chaos Studios. Well, that sounds chaotic. And that's all great, except that there is already a company using the Chaos name somewhere else in the country. Not a video game company, but another company. And the other chaos is like, oh, that's no problem. We're in different fields. You can definitely use our name. $400,000. No. Yes, we're not going to do that. So we won't be Chaos Studios. We'll be Ogre Studio. That sounds better. We talked about this a little bit in the Sierra episode. Because, as we said, Sierra and Davidson get caught up. And, of course, Blizzard will, too. We're getting there in this episode as well. Those that listen may recall that the Davidsons are a bit conservative. Wee bit. And they are also very conscious of the fact that to this point, their products have really been marketed towards young children. They're not expecting Silicon and Synapse slash Chaos slash Ogre to only market their products to young children. Obviously, they let them do Diablo. But that's still who they are at this time. So the name Ogre does not sit well at all with particularly Jan Davidson. She's not sure what the shareholders will think. She'll not, she's not sure what the kids will think of a company called Ogre. So Bob Davidson has to call them up and be like, I know we said we were going to give you complete freedom. <laughs> oh, God. But just this, this one thing, if you could do it for us, let's not be Ogre. It's the start of a slippery slope. But it's really not. It actually is really not. So I, I want to say before we get further in the story, the Davidsons are really true to their word on this. They let them have complete creative freedom. But they did want to have an input in what the company was called. So they, they nixed the ogre thing. It's one of the few times they actually put their foot down and were like, no. Okay, so we need something else. We liked chaos. We liked chaos because... The company itself is fairly chaotic. These are a group of young, unmarried, male nerds and gamers that are somehow getting products out in the midst of all of this Neo Geo playing, Magic playing, D&D playing craziness that's going on every day. It's chaos. I mean, it's organized chaos, but it's chaos. So they like this idea of a chaotic force, but a chaotic force that is bringing something into the world. So Alan goes to the dictionary and he's trying to pick out words that he feels get to the heart of that same idea of chaos. One of those words that he chooses out of there is blizzard. No one really remembers what the other words were. I mean, it was not the only word. He pulled out several words for everyone to debate about and blizzard was one of them and, and everyone was kind of on board with that. It's still kind of this chaotic force. But then when the blizzard is done rolling through, you've got this beautiful snowfall, uh, this beautiful snow cover. As long as you don't have to, like, shovel your car and go out and drive in it, it's, it's very nice and cool and pleasant looking in a way. 
I do like having a nice blizzard when I'm home. I can then open up the window, look out with my hot chocolate, pet the cat and go, you know, I'm glad I'm not going into work today. <laughs> yes. So there, it's kind of this idea of beauty from disorder, beauty from great carnage or whatever. And so that really appealed to them. And so that is why they finally, after the first two names didn't work out, third time's charm, they become Blizzard Entertainment, which, of course, they have been ever since. And at this point, they are getting ready to publish their first game under their own name. I mean, they are owned by Davidson, but Blizzard Games will be published under the Blizzard name. (laughs) There's no Davidson and Associates on that box, (laughs) you know. Well, there might be in the fine print, I don't know. But you bought a Blizzard game, you didn't know it was anything but a Blizzard game back in the 90s. So there are a few things that they've been kicking around. There are a few things going on. Alan, I think it's Alan, it could be one of the other co-founders, but I think it's Alan, kind of had this idea that maybe they could do a series of strategy games based on different periods in human history. And so he had this idea that you would unify these games as part of a series. And so the series would be Warcraft. So you would have Warcraft, Roman Empire, Warcraft. American Civil War. I mean, you might have more imaginative titles than that, but basically Warcraft would be the series title. And then you would have the Roman game. You would have the Civil War game. You would have the World War II game. The space game. All under, well, real things. Not space, because this is real. Real historical Real historical games. But Warcraft would be the idea that tied them all together. Well, this is a company of D&D and Tolkien and fantasy fanatics, and really none of them were too keen on that. At the same time, though, there was this little game that had just come out called Dune 2. Oh, we never played Dune 2 fanatically, and then having to get past certain mentats and their bloody copy protection. Yes, we talked about that, of course, in our personal history episode. Dune 2 was the first real, real-time strategy game. There are games that you can look back at today and say, well, this had these elements of real-time strategy and this had these elements of real-time strategy. It was certainly not the first strategy game that took place in real time, but it was the first of what you could really define as what today we call a real-time strategy game. And in fact, Westwood or their parent company, Virgin, not coincidentally, another Orange County company, were the ones that coined the term real-time strategy in the marketing materials for Dune 2. So this is the first real-time strategy game, and everybody is in love with it. So Patrick Wyatt takes it upon himself, literally takes it upon himself. At the beginning, this is a one-man team, and that one man is Patrick Wyatt. This is that first employee we talked about, friend of Mike Morhames. Takes it upon himself to start creating a version of that at Blizzard because he's free. Other people are finishing up working on other projects or whatever. He's free to do this game, and he starts programming their own version of it. The one thing that they keep from Alan's idea of this strategy series, obviously, is the name Warcraft. And at this point, I mean, I don't know this, but at this point, they might have still been thinking of it in those series terms because obviously that's a very generic name, Warcraft. Orcs and humans. It doesn't get much more generic. So it wouldn't surprise me if at this point they were still 
holding out on this idea that maybe Warcraft would be a series of games in different kind of settings, and then they'd have the other part of the title that would kind of highlight what setting that is. They weren't necessarily looking at this point to turn Warcraft into a franchise, or what we now know as Warcraft into a franchise. But that's kind of why it has this generic name, this Warcraft, Orcs and Humans, because Warcraft was originally going to mean something very different in the context of Blizzard software catalog. Patrick White starts on this, and then, you know, he ropes a couple of artists in, and then more people get roped in. I mean, it's a real company project. It's just that it starts with just him. There are a couple of things that kind of become their goals right away. First, they decide they really want kind of an outrageous and cartoony art style. They start by making the orcs and the humans look a little more realistic, a little more realistically proportioned, with more realistic-looking arms and armor or whatever else. But quickly, that falls by the wayside. One of the early artists, that I, whose name I mentioned earlier, Sam DDA, he really liked drawing these kind of over-the-top, heroic fantasy kind of figures. Really big shoulders. Yes. And so his art style kind of became the art style of this game. And they went for a more cartoony look, a less proportional look with spikes and horns and shoulders and all sorts of crazy stuff coming out of everywhere. They wanted something that was just colorful and bright and cartoony, what we associate with that Blizzard look. The other thing is that they absolutely, positively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, wanted this to be multiplayer. Oh, yes. Multiplayer. Because Dune 2 was not multiplayer. Dune 2 was a single-player game. Network play was still somewhat in its infancy in this time period. Dune 2 came out in 1992. Warcraft comes out in 1994. Very much still the kind of the early days of networking. And even for a while afterwards, even with Warcraft 2, it's a entertaining prospect. Yes. So they're using IPX protocol and they're going to do networking where two people can play against each other. This is also the period of time when 3D graphics are coming in a little bit. And so while the game's not 3D, they're, they're using sprites, they decide that they want to start experimenting with 3D some as well. For this reason, they decide to start a cinematics department. At the beginning, it's a cinematics department of one. They have one artist in the company that has 3D experience, so he is the cinematics department. But they know that this 3D thing is coming, and so they want to be a part of that because they think that's cool. So they start a cinematics department very consciously for this game. And the cinematics in the first Warcraft are very simple, very crude, very rudimentary. Mostly it's just map sections rising up and zooming in as you go to the various missions in the game. But obviously this is the beginning of something very important at Blizzard. I think it's fair to say that Blizzard over the years has become very well known for the cinematic sequences in its games. Oh, definitely. As you play through all their games, even Warcraft 1, for the time, it was mind-blowing the cinematics that you had. Compare that to even Dune 2 and the cinematics there. Dune 1 is the only one, and that's only because they did actual video for that, mm -hmm. that could actually challenge it. Everything else did not look that good. Then you look at Warcraft 2, Tides of Darkness. You have these orcs coming in on, on the fleet. Mm -hmm. It's really nice. They use it really well for a gameplay aspect, too, to really help 
drive and tell the story they want to tell. And then you had the phenomenal look of Warcraft 3 with blizzarding seams everywhere, cold and ice and snow. And that Arthur scene, you know, in Lordaeron when he comes back and murders his father. I mean, that's spoilers. <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty powerful stuff, you know? I mean, oh, yeah. It's really, really good. It really drives the point home of what happened. You have the corruption of Arthas from that sword, Frostmourne. You have that built up in the gameplay and then to have it all come together at the end where he kills his father, mm-hmm. literally, it's amazing. You you see him stomp in, you've got this great sound, you full armor, that whole art style of big shoulders, mm-hmm. big knee pads, stomp, stomp, stomp in and presentation. You know, right before he goes in, you know, right before he goes inside, he kind of, there's, you know, cherry blossoms or rose petals or whatever falling and you know like he reaches out and you know grabs one of them and there's like this moment where he's like remembering his humanity almost and and then that moment's gone i mean you know very subtle things like that and it's because they decided very early on that this was cool and they wanted to be a part of it and i think that put them far ahead at least of the rest of the american industry i mean certainly companies like square and, of course, Warcraft's before Final Fantasy VII, but I'm just saying, in general, a company like Square became very adept at using cinematic sequences as well. But Blizzard was really on the front lines of that and continues to do impressive scenes today. And again, just like with so many other aspects of Blizzard, it's not necessarily that they are always going to have the most impressive cinematics from a technological point of view. Sometimes they do, but not necessarily always. The important thing is the sense of character and place and emotion that they are able to put into their cinematic sequences. Definitely. They really know how to utilize that tool in order to really draw you in to a game and really drive the point home. A quick question, though, with Warcraft. I've heard before, I'm not sure if this is true or not, that originally Blizzard wanted to do a Warhammer game. They go, yeah, let's do this Warhammer game. They go, well, what's the licensing fee for that? Oh, dear. (laughs) We're not going to do a Warhammer game. No. No, that's more or less true. I'm not sure if it was that the licensing fee was high or that Games Workshop just didn't want to have anything to do with them. But they did at one point pursue a Warhammer license because they thought that would be a good fit. I think they came up with the idea of the game that they wanted to do and the type of game they wanted to do first, thought it would be a good fit, explored getting a Warhammer license and could not get it. But absolutely, Warhammer is a huge influence. Uh, It's funny, I forget which staff member it was, but I think it was one of the artists, you know, a couple years later or whatever, said to him, it's like, I saw this thing called uh, Warhammer and it really seemed... Like it was very similar to your game. Maybe you should look at taking some legal action because I think they're infringing on your property. Uh, about. An artist was just like, <laughs> uh, yes, them infringing on us. About that. If anyone <laughs> has a legal case here, it's Games Workshop versus Blizzard. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but so there is some truth there. There is absolutely some truth there, though. The the concept, I think, was in place before they thought about getting a Warhammer license. And of course, 
as I explained earlier, the Warcraft name came from a completely different place. So Warcraft wasn't meant to be something that sounds... Yeah. It's because they weren't, when they were coming up with the Warcraft name, they weren't even thinking fantasy. They were thinking Mm -hmm. Roman Empire. (laughs) Okay, so it makes sense in that point. So we got Blizzard making Warcraft. They're working on making the game. Hey, this is a really great orcs versus humans thing going on. Oh, wait, there's Games Workshop Warhammer. Maybe that would be a good fit as far as a story aesthetic standpoint to put our game engine and artwork and style into. Mm Mm-hmm. That would work good. Hey, Games Workshop, do you want to do this? No. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Hey, GM nerds over there and uh, art dudes, we need to have some conversations about creating a universe. (laughs) That's right. And at this point, they didn't really create a universe. They did some interesting things. This is the point that Bill Roper joins the company. They bring in Bill Roper because he's done sound stuff and they need someone to kind of oversee some of the production of some of the uh, things that people are going to say, the things that units say and all of that. And so he provides a lot of that kind of quirky Warcraft Blizzard sense of humor to the audio production of the game and uh, writes some of the stuff. I I think he writes. I could be wrong, but I think he writes some of the intro stuff like in the age of chaos (laughs) to factions by whatever the whatever it is uh you know so he provides some of that bill roper does but they're not really thinking in terms of a universe yet i mean obviously they've got a look they've got an aesthetic and they've got an audio aesthetic too through bill roper but they're not looking really at a world that comes really with warcraft 2 and it comes almost entirely from a singular place and that place is a man named chris metzen Chris Metzen was an artist. Uh, He knew how to draw, but he was not a professional artist. He was actually in a band. I think he was the singer, but whether he was the singer or an instrumentalist, he was in a band and he was doing gigs around. And a friend of his either worked at Blizzard or knew about Blizzard and said, hey, there's this there's this company that really needs artists and you should really check them out. They may have been chaos at that time. There was a brief period of time where they were called chaos. I mean, Ogre, they were never called Ogre because that name was just shot down. But there was a very brief period that they were called Chaos. They were definitely not Blizzard yet. They may have been Chaos. If they weren't Chaos, they were Silicon and Synapse. He didn't know who they were. He had no idea that there was a games company that his friend was even pushing on him. He thought it was probably some production company of some kind or another. But he still thought, okay, that that's cool. I mean, there's actually someone that will pay me to draw. It was honestly something that had never entered his mind before. So he goes and he does the interview. And when he goes there, he realizes what this place is, not just that it's a game company, but that it is full top to bottom of game lovers, game people, fantasy lovers, fantasy people. And he basically tells them, dude, I will sweep the floors. I will do any job, any job just to be a part of what this is. And I mean, they hire him as an artist. They don't make him sweep the floors. But the point is, he is so pumped and so psyched at this point. So he joins as an artist. I think he arrives in 94. It's, it's around there somewhere. When it comes time to do Warcraft 2, because they're clearly going to do Warcraft 2, the first game was very successful. He starts just kind of on his own, kind of developing, well, what would have happened between Warcraft and Warcraft 2, this game that they've already decided that they just want to make bigger and better, more races, more continents, etc. 
what would happen. So he kind of starts just on his own, just for himself, like fleshing out kind of the story of what happened. This is the beginning, the real beginning of creating lore in Blizzard games. I think it's fair to say that lore is another thing that Blizzard is very well known for. Now, it's not always consistent. They love retconning themselves. They love doing a complete 180 on the story because they think of a real cool idea and they want to see that, whether it makes sense with the current direction the story is going or not. It's not like they are meticulous planners where they have mapped out every corner of their world in the way that, say, a J.R.R. Tolkien did. But they certainly always respect having lore in their properties. Lore is a big part of the immersion in any Blizzard universe, even something like Overwatch that is a multiplayer team-based game and really doesn't have all of that much plot, has so much lore and background around all of the characters, all of the heroes in the game, because that's just another defining aspect of Blizzard. And it really comes back to Chris Metzen. Not that other people in the company weren't excited about doing this too, but Chris Metzen is the one that sat down and said, this game gonna have some lore, man. We want to build up a story behind these characters. Mm -hmm. And you certainly see that with everything that follows, especially with their latest thing with Overwatch, where you have tie-in comics, Mm -hmm. tie-in stories, tie-in this, tie-in that. Little short videos that sort of convey the characters and how they, I think every character gets an intro video. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really fascinating the amount of effort they put into just making characters human and relatable. Mm -hmm. And then obviously there are more lore-centric franchises like Diablo and especially Warcraft slash World of Warcraft. I mean, there's novels and trilogies of novels and (laughs) trilogies of trilogies of novels that have gone into fleshing out the lore even outside of what appears in the games and what appears in the instruction manuals, etc. for the games. Yes. Chris Metzen is the start of that. I mean, he was, uh, he retired a couple of years ago. He spent his whole career at Blizzard, but he just, he finally decided to retire. I mean, he was the lore master of Blizzard. He is the reason that Blizzard kind of went down this path. And in the Warcraft universe, then that, that really starts with Warcraft 2. That's when they really established this lore base. And of course, Warcraft 2 is another massive hit. Warcraft is a pretty decent hit. Warcraft 2 is an even bigger hit. Job done. (laughs) Yes. Of course, there's always that problem that Alex and I had. We uh, once played the game over a modem, and I had to go get a sandwich. Yes. And there were... I think it was pizza. It could have been pizza. It doesn't matter. There was food involved. I was hungry. Yes. It was both of us versus a computer. And Alex was going, hello, who is it? (laughs) <laughs> yes. We planned explosives. We, we are inordinately fond of the uh, goblin sappers. To this day, occasionally they get brought up. <laughs> like right now. Yes. <laughs> he had to flee from his base to mine, and I wasn't there to open the door, so to speak. So I may have lost a few people who were guarding the door. <laughs> yes. Good times, good times. Now, Warcraft and Warcraft 2, that was the original product. But at this point in their history, they are still doing contract work as well. 
They're kind of doing contract work again in kind of the Southern California, Orange County community. Another company that is based in Orange County is Sunsoft America, the American arm of the Japanese Sunsoft company. They have uh, a DC license. Uh, They released the Batman game based on the movie on the NES a few years prior to this. And they've still got DC licenses. So they are doing a couple of things. They're doing a fighting game, straight up Street Fighter type clone based around the, the Justice League. Justice League Task Force, I think it's called. They're also doing a beat-em-up based on the whole Death of Superman comic arc that had just happened. So these are console games, and these are games that Blizzard is doing as well. They discover when they go to, I guess, a CES, they discover that while they're working on the Super Nintendo Justice League Task Force game, There is actually also a Sega Genesis version, and they are not the ones doing it. The Sega Genesis version, Sunsoft has farmed out to a different company called Condor. Hmm. Condor is the brainchild of three individuals, David Brevik and the brothers Max and Eric Schaefer. All three of these guys met at a very small clip art company. They had gone to college. I think one of them had dropped out. I, I'm not going to go into their background, really. But uh, they were kind of aimless, and they kind of all ended up kind of at this clip art company. Like David Brevik, I think, you know, when he saw the Macintosh, it was kind of a revelation. It's like desktop publishing. That's a thing that can happen. And all three ended up at this company just making clip art. David Brevik's father ended up being from the same small town in Poland as Jack Trammell who at this point is running Atari. So they end up getting a development contract with Atari, kind of partially through this personal connection, to do a game, I think on the Atari Lynx, the handheld. So the Schaefers and Brevik are working on this thing while they're at this clip art company. At that point, David leaves, and he becomes the first employee of a new developer called Iguana which we talked about a little bit in our Acclaim episode, because they end up getting bought by Acclaim later. They do several high-profile ports for Acclaim, including NBA Jam. He does, uh, I believe, high-impact football at Iguana, which is an arcade port that Acclaim was putting out and they had Iguana do. And so he's making contacts in the industry at Iguana, and he's getting console experience and all of that there. The Schaefers hold on at the clip art company until the clip art company that was never in particularly good shape went out of business. They ran into the common problem that anyone that deals with Jack Trammell tended to run into, where Jack Trammell did everything he could not to pay milestones and squeeze you a little bit, and then you ended up in financial trouble, though they were already in financial trouble. Uh, as the founder of the company said in an interview for the book, Stay a While and Listen, we were we were probably doomed either way. <laughs> it, but obviously that doesn't help. So they went out of business. The Schaefers get a deal with a very, very small Super Nintendo publisher to port the game that they created for Atari to the Super Nintendo. So they're kind of working on that. David Brevik is working at Iguana. But then the founder of Iguana, Jeff Spangenberg, marries a Texan, marries a Texas woman. So he moves the company to Texas as a result of that. 
David doesn't want to go to Texas. He's trying to find a way that he can stay in there up north, there in Silicon Valley. He wants to find a way that he can stay up in San Mateo, Redwood Shores, that part of Silicon Valley where he's located. So he calls up the Breviks and says, hey, my company's moving. I don't want to move with them. We've talked about going into business before. Now's the time to go into business together. And they were like, well, no, we're doing this. We're doing that. It's just not a good time for us, yada, yada, yada. Brevik's like, okay, well, if things change, let me know. And then their deal on the Super Nintendo game falls through because the publisher they were working with goes away. And so they're like, okay, we're free now, too. Let's do this company together. So they create Condor. Brevik has contacts with Acclaim and Sunsoft and all these places that Iguana's worked with. So because he has contacts with Sunsoft, Sunsoft gives them that other Justice League port. So it's it's an unusual situation because they have both been tasked with creating a Street Fighter clone fighting game using DC characters. But they haven't been told that the other one is also doing something. So there's no coordination. You know, they actually commissioned two different games on two different consoles from two different companies and don't care if the two games are very different from each other. Obviously, they're not going to be hugely different because they're both fighting games. But you know, it's just kind of an interesting situation. You wonder kind of why they did that. That's unusual. Certainly is. So they discover each other at CES. And it's like, oh, wow, you're making this game too. Okay, that's great. Well, what else you got going on? You know, well, Blizzard people are like, well, we've got this uh, real-time strategy game we're working on called Warcraft. Oh, Warcraft. Oh, that sounds kind of cool. Uh, yeah, could we see that? Oh, yeah, sure. We'll give you a copy. I mean, this is before it's been released. This is while they're still working on it. But they kind of give them an, an advanced copy or whatever. They let them have that. And they're like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I mean, they, they fell in love with Warcraft. So there's this rapport developing between these two companies. At this point, then after Warcraft is released and becomes a huge hit, there is pressure. I mean, the Davidsons are being very good about letting them be independent and everything. But certainly when you've had a success, there is pressure to have bigger and better successes, especially since the Davidsons are ambitious. And the reason they got Blizzard in the first place is that they wanted to continue to expand and expand into new fields. So they really need more games. So they're like, Condor, what do what you guys got going on? It's like, well, we've got this thing we're working on. It's turn-based, isometric game. It's kind of based on Rogue a little bit, and it's kind of based on XCOM a little bit, and uh, it's called Diablo. I'm like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. Maybe we could publish Diablo. And they're like, okay, yeah, that, that'll work. You need a publisher. And so Blizzard is going to take on this game that they're working on. As I indicated a second ago, uh, Diablo, this game that David Brevik and company are doing, is really spawning from two sources. One is Rogue and the Roguelikes. David Brevik is particularly fond of a roguelike called Angbond, which is named after location in Tolkien, and is the one that he's particularly enamored with. He loves the idea of the roguelike, of the randomness, of the encountering various different types of monsters and figuring out how to defeat them, of the improving your character by finding better and better weapons and armor, all of this stuff that kind of goes into a roguelike. Then at the same time, they've also started playing XCOM, and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with XCOM. Oh, yes, definitely. 
more so the newer incarnation, but originally a British game. And the old version was more nightmarish heart of joy. Yes. But never played it back when I was a kid. Right. Neither did I. That's when we kind of missed. But I was aware of it. I saw it in stores, but I never ended up buying it. But Why didn't you tell me? I don't know. So the heart of this game, there was a big strategic mode as well in terms of doing research and allocating resources and whatnot. But the real kind of heart of the game was this tactical combat mode that was turn-based and took place in kind of isometric spaces where you had all of your soldiers with their various equipment and abilities and whatnot, and the alien invaders with their various abilities, and you took turns moving in this isometric space and attacking and all of that. That was kind of the heart of this XCOM game. And that really resonated with David Brevik and the people at Condor. What they came up with was an isometric turn-based game where you have this hero and you are taking turns with the monsters moving around attacking and then like a roguelike you're getting better equipment leveling up all of that it's the combination of a roguelike and XCOM for lack of a better term it was called Diablo basically because David Brevik uh, grew up near well once they moved to California he kind of moved all around when he was a younger child, but when they moved to California, they lived near a Mount Diablo. And he thought that was kind of cool, and that's where the name comes from. So they have this game called Diablo, and they need a publisher for it. Blizzard is riding high off of Warcraft and needs bigger and better successes, so they're looking for a game to publish. And it's kind of a match made in heaven. So they make this agreement. So the brilliant isometric turn-based game Diablo comes out a couple of years later, right? That's the Diablo you remember playing, isn't it? Well, I did play it on a 486, so yes. <laughs> a fair point. For kids who don't know, Diablo is not supposed to be played on a 486. No. It's supposed to be played on the very least a Pentium class Pentium 1 processor. Young Jeffrey did not have a Pentium 1 processor. <laughs> Young Jeffrey had a 486 machine. He saw Diablo, and at the time, he didn't know about this thing called minimum system specs. Mm. But the game was nice in it, and this is a credit to Blizzard and uh, what eventually becomes Blizzard North. Apparently, it didn't care or check. So it installed, <laughs> it ran. But I could go to the bathroom while my character was clicked to go in the general direction of where the sanctuary was. Step, 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 step. Yes. Well, for most of the civilized world, Diablo, of course, was not a turn-based, sing strictly single-player, isometric roguelike. And the story of how we get from point A to point B will be the place where we take up this story of Blizzard Entertainment next time on They Create Worlds. In a two-parter for Blizzard. Bye, everyone. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Shoot us an email at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. 
and follow us on Twitter at TCW Podcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license.